Well, thanks for that intro, Brad. It's great to be back with you all. It's been about six weeks, I think. Um, took me about six years to come preach at the table the first time. But now I've been here twice in just a couple of months, so it's awesome to be back. We are just up the road in Longmont, um, and we are super grateful for this church for the way that you welcomed us when we first moved to Colorado from Montana. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me back. I love the Gospel of John, and uh, one of the reasons is because John utilizes uh, symbolism and imagery and hints at hidden meanings in ways that just the other three gospel writers don't quite do. And so his portrayal of Palm Sunday has a little bit of a different emphasis than some of the other gospel writers. If you're, if you're curious about that, I'd encourage you to read each of them this coming week and just see how they differ. See, how they're, see where each gospel writer places this account of Palm Sunday in their overall story and the events that precede and come after and just see the way that John is different. But I love the way he portrays things because of this hidden meaning. And so here, as Brad alluded to, this is John's account of Palm Sunday, of, of what's popularly known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You know, it's this kind of imagery or this title that invokes this conquering king who's coming into town to take his throne, to take over his kingdom. And this story, as we've come to expect from John, is full of hidden meaning. Now, to give you a bit of context for the story, John places Palm Sunday right after Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And we kind of we get an allusion to that in uh, verse 17, where Lazarus is mentioned. But this is right after he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And so news of this miracle would have been spreading far and wide. And by the time Jesus strolls into Jerusalem to celebrate this final Passover meal and Passover week with his disciples and with the crowds, Lazarus had actually been alive for a, for, for a little bit of time. We don't exactly know how long, but it was at least weeks or months. And so people had heard the story and they were curious and they had filled the streets of Jerusalem to come and try to get a peek at Jesus. He was the one who had the power to reverse even death. So he drew a crowd. Imagine the scene. A crowded street full of people hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he entered the city. If you've ever been to a parade, then you kind of have some idea of what this looked like. When we lived in Philadelphia, every year on New Year's Day, there was a huge parade called the Mummer's Day Parade. And people crowded the streets of Philly to try to catch a glimpse of the mummers. Now, what's a mummer, you ask? It comes from the French word that means to wear a mask or to pantomime. Think of those movies set in France where all of the guests of the, of the party would wear those big fluffy masks to hide their identity. The mummers are bands where the musicians dressed up in elaborate costumes with masks and feathers, and they would play uh, their instruments, and the, the band would, would march along through the streets of Philly. And each band was judged not only on their musical ability, but also on the, on the uh, coolness, I guess, of their costume. And it's a big deal in Philadelphia. Literally thousands and thousands of people turn out on New Year's Day so that they can see the mummers. But in our story, the only float in this parade 
is the poor and lowly Jesus riding on the back of a pathetic donkey, and yet thousands turn out just the same to see him. They are there for a specific reason to finally crown him as king. And John's been hinting at this all along in his story. If you turn back to chapter 5, where Jesus fed the 5,000, or sorry, chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with that little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fishes, right at the end of that story, the crowd actually wants to crown him king, and they come and try to take Jesus by force. Now he's just raised a man from the dead. Over and over, we've heard Jesus say that his hour had not yet come. But finally, here in verse 23, Jesus says that his hour has come. The hour has come for him to take his throne. The hour has come for him to finally be recognized as king. But we quickly realize or find that this is not what Jesus has in mind when he talks about his hour. It doesn't mean what the disciples thought it meant. It doesn't mean what we think it means either. So what does it mean that his hour has come? Well, five times in this story, John uses the word glory or glorified. It hints at the fact that the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is really all about glory. It's all about how glory is awarded in God's kingdom. And as Jesus trots slowly into town, finally willing to let the people embrace him as king, He makes the question of allegiance front and center by dropping a bombshell in verses 24 through 26 about what kingship means for them. He says here that with him as king, we're going to have to hate our own lives if we want to partake in his glory. We're going to have to hate our very own lives if we want to partake in his glory, if we want to participate in his glory, if we want the kind of resurrection life that he promised through the raising of Lazarus, then we're going to have to give up ours. So this morning, I want to flesh out the implications for us of Jesus' kingship and what it means to participate in his glory. I want to cast a vision for you of a glory that is so much better than any glory that you can think of in this world. So just two points this morning. Just two points. The problem of death and the glory of death. The problem of death, the glory of death, as we consider that first Palm Sunday. Father, as we come to you in your word this morning, we want to catch a glimpse of your glory because, Lord, our life is, is hard. Father, this world is broken. We saw it this week, how quickly life can be snuffed out in just a moment, in unexpected ways. And we need a taste of your resurrection. We need a glimpse of your glory. And I pray that you would provide that today through your spirit, by your word. Lord, would you give us faith to walk through this world with boldness, with humility, and to lay down our lives for you. In your name we pray, amen. Man, Jesus seems like a downer sometimes, doesn't he? You ever feel that way when you're reading the stories of Jesus? You're just like, what is his problem sometimes? He never seems to be able to enjoy the moment. 
Like in chapter 2, there's that famous story, you know, where he turns the water into wine at that wedding because the party's starting to, it's just getting good, but the wines run out. And so he turns all of this ordinary water into extraordinary wine so the party can keep going. And yet the whole time he seems distant, distracted, even a little irritated, right? Here the crowd has just been celebrating him. They're waving palm branches. They're shouting hosannas. They're quoting Old Testament passages of a, of a king, an heir of David, that would finally take the throne and deliver Israel. And they're applying these messianic prophecies to him. The good and righteous king is here, and they're rejoicing over the fact that he's been sent by God. They are giving him glory. And isn't that what he wanted all along? Isn't that why he did the miracles? Isn't that why he healed and gave the blind man sight in chapter 9? Isn't that why he raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11? So that he could finally receive glory? So he could prove that he was God and was a king that they had been waiting for? But verse 23, after the parade, Jesus says, Now my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking in this moment? Jesus, didn't that just happen like a little bit ago when you were in the parade and everybody was shouting Hosanna? The disciples would have been basking in this moment with everyone around finally recognizing who Jesus was and what he was capable of, pledging their allegiance to him. They finally felt validated for following him for these three years. Isn't that what we sometimes want? Like, we kind of follow Jesus, and when times get a little bit hard, sometimes we just want, like, a non-Christian friend to come to faith that we've been praying for. Not 100% because we're wanting them to come to know Jesus, but partially at least, we want to be validated, right? That it's all worth it that the sacrifice has been worth it, that we're not wrong. They wanted to finally be validated. They wanted their faith affirmed. So think about that for a second. Maybe we can understand a little bit of their shock when Jesus continues to speak and they realize that he's talking about a different kind of glory than the one that he just received in the parade. He goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Can't you just enjoy the moment, Jesus? Why do you have to start talking about death amidst all of this life? Why do you have to be such a downer? Jesus can't enjoy this moment. Because becoming Israel's earthly king was not his purpose from the get-go. This is not why he came. John has been hinting at this all along. This is part of his hidden meaning. All of these things that John's been hinting at are suddenly coming into focus. Jesus had set his face on Jerusalem from the get-go, but it was not for this moment. It was not for Palm Sunday. It was not to be coronated as king on earth. It was not to receive an earthly glory. Instead, as we shall see on Friday, it was to enter the heavenly Jerusalem by way of death and resurrection, of which Lazarus was a sign of. 
That is the true glory. It's heavenly glory. He has entered Jerusalem triumphantly, but this is not a good name for this event because Jesus still has an epic battle to fight. He is a king who came to die, to do battle with death itself and the fear of death, to go into death itself so that he could beat it from the inside out. That is why he came, to put an end to humanity's greatest foe. See, Jesus turns out to be a different kind of king than they wanted, a different kind of king than we often want. He came to be a warrior king, doing battle to the death over our souls, but they wanted an earthly king who would meet their earthly needs. And it begs the question, are we any different? Like, what do we really want in this life? I think most of the time we want good health care, better wages, less taxes, Safety from foreign enemies. I can tell you in 2020, all I wanted was in-school learning. Amen. Cheaper gas. No traffic on I-70 on the weekends. You know, that'd be really nice. We want more comforts most of the time. And I'm telling you, the disciples were no different. They had earthly longings that they were expecting Jesus to fulfill. But Jesus is calling us to die to give up our comfort. He's showing us that death is the gateway to the heavenly kingdom and that you have to go through it if you want to have a fruitful life, if you want to bear fruit. There's a really famous book by Mitch Albom called Weekends with Maury, and it's a series of conversations that Mitch has with a dying man who is um, uh, just meeting with him every weekend to have these like frank conversations. And in one of those conversations, Maury said to Mitch, the truth is, Mitch, once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. When you realize you are going to die, you see everything much differently. Learn how to die and you learn how to live. Mitch, can I tell you something? You might not like it. Well, the truth is, if you really listen to that bird on your shoulder, if you accept that you can die at any time, then you might not be as ambitious as you are. The things you spend so much time on, all the work you do, might not seem so important. You might have to make room for some more spiritual things. Now, Maury isn't a Christian, but he's on to something, isn't he? He's saying that the key to life is embracing death. The path to true glory is sacrifice and service. But this is a problem for us, isn't it? Because Lady Gaga tells us to live for the applause, the applause, applause, live for the applause, applause, live for the applause. Our culture says that what matters is what you can achieve. Who recognizes you? It's all about your approval rating. It's not about service. And we see this all the time in sports. One of the key questions that reporters often ask star quarterbacks like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning is about their legacy. What do you hope your legacy is, they ask. In other words, what do you hope people will remember you by when you're gone? What do you hope to achieve that will stand the test of time? It's all about glory. That's why athletes compete, and so we grow up believing that glory is all about how much we can accomplish, what our stats are, what people remember us by. It's all about making our name great, and that's what many of us live for. The truth is, Mitch, that when you learn how to die, you learn how to live. 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus is calling us to see something bigger for our lives, something bigger than our own name or our own legacies, to see our story as part of a much bigger story, to learn to define glory through how much we sacrifice, by how much we lay down, by how much we give up, not by how much we die to ourselves, not by how much we gain. Now, when Jesus says that he wants us to hate our lives in this world, he's not saying that we need to um, hate ourselves. He's not saying that we need to, to devalue ourselves or to put ourselves down. He's talking about humility, that in comparison to how much we value and seek his glory, it will look to the world like we hate ourselves in comparison He's also not asking us to stop our quest for glory. It is part of human nature. It is part of how we were created. It is part of the image of God in us, the Imago Dei, that we actually pursue glory. This isn't a bad thing. This is a God-given, God-ordained. It is the part of God in us that I think still remains very heavy in our image of him, whether we believe in Jesus or not. We are glory seekers, and we are meant to be glory seekers, and he is not calling us to stop seeking glory. What he's calling us to is to trade in our glory for his glory. The recognition that we get from our achievements for the recognition that he gets from our achievements. To trade in our need for approval that we can get from others for the approval we already have from God. To live for his applause rather than the applause of the world. Where do we find the power for this? How do we do it? It's very easy. Well, it's very simple, not easy. It's through the promise of resurrection. Through the promise of resurrection. Because the promise of resurrection changes everything. When we really believe that death is not the end, but only the beginning, then it changes everything for us. Now, I'm not going to preach a whole second sermon here on resurrection, because that's next Sunday. You have to come back for it. But I am going to give you one illustration about how this plays out. This passage, as we saw, immediately follows after the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus' promise in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 25, to his sister Mary, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, this promise and the subsequent resurrection of her brother Lazarus profoundly impacted Mary. Our chapter, chapter 12, actually begins, the, the part Brad didn't read, those first 11 verses, actually begin with Mary's response to Jesus and his raising of her brother Lazarus. And she's sitting, or sorry, Jesus and the disciples and Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, they're all sitting in a, in a, in, at their house having dinner. And Mary goes upstairs and she comes back and she takes a pound of expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she empties it on Jesus' feet, and she begins washing or drying his feet with her hair. Do you remember that story? 
this lavish display of love and affection on him. Now, Judas, one of the 12 who some, uh, some of the gospel writers allude to the fact that he will end up betraying Jesus for this moment, he actually gets angry at this. Why? Because he's the treasurer, and he knows how expensive this jar of perfume is. Verse 5 says that it can be, could have been sold for 500 denarii, or sorry, 300 denarii. Now, that may not seem like much to us, but a denarii was, a denarius was about a day's wages for a laborer back then. And so, if you do the math, it's almost a year's salary. So, take your salary, whatever it is, for a whole year, and imagine dumping that on the feet of Jesus. But there's more to this story. Most historians recognize that this jar of ointment was probably Mary's wedding dowry. It was extremely difficult for a woman to be single in the first century, and so they had a lot of hope in the possibility of being married one day. So they had to accumulate a a good dowry to be able to give to a potential suitor so that they could be married. So Mary is symbolically laying her hopes and her dreams for marriage, her safety net, on Jesus' feet as well. She's giving him everything. See, Mary is no longer bound by her possessions or her dreams. Her hope is now elsewhere. The resurrection has made all the difference for her. This story illustrates that Mary gets it. She's laying down all she has, literally on the feet of Jesus. She could care less about her reputation among the disciples. She could care less about her dignity. All she cares about is blessing and loving her Lord. She's been utterly freed up to love him. That's true glory. That's true glory. Church, what's your jar of ointment? What's the thing that you would withhold from Jesus? What in your life is off limits to him? Where do you say, Jesus, ask anything of me but that? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's the place you live, like Don't ever ask me to move from here, Jesus. Don't ever ask, fill in the blank. As long as you hang on tightly to your life, then you're missing out on full glory. You must die to yourself. Lose your life. Not squander the things you've worked hard for. Not to just give them away haphazardly. But to offer it to him. Your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your safety nets. And when you do, you will receive a life that far surpasses what you can imagine. Now look, I said this earlier, this is not easy. Death is incredibly hard. This is a type of dying that Jesus is talking about. It's not necessarily physical death, right? But it is a sort of dying, a giving up of ourselves. But we can face it when we believe wholeheartedly in the hope of resurrection and So I just encourage you, start with resurrection. What do you believe about it? Is it true? Did he really raise Lazarus from the dead? Was he really raised from the dead? If you're somebody who's who's here or maybe watching online today and you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing, maybe you're still trying to figure it out, start with the resurrection because that's where everybody else starts. So that's the first thing. I know that's a long point. That's most of our sermon. The rest is just sort of, Another illustration to to help you process it, but um, that's the problem of death. It's really hard, but there's also a glory in death. 
Jesus gives us a, a vision here that death, when we embrace it, it comes with a, a that's how we get in on glory. See, he wants us to, to come to see that the only glory worth seeking, the only glory that will leave an eternal legacy, one that goes far beyond the grave, is his glory. It's the only way that our lives will truly produce fruit that leads to godliness, that leads others to life. And it's only obtainable through death. What's he say? Unless a seed is broken... And buried in the earth, it cannot live up to its full potential and purpose for which it was created. Because only when a seed goes into the ground and breaks apart, that new life springs out of it. That's the only way that a seed can reproduce. Only then can it truly bear fruit. Only then does it receive glory. We don't look at a seed, an acorn on the ground, and go, wow, what a glorious tree that is. It's only after it goes into the ground and it sprouts up and creates a large, beautiful tree that offers shade and offers wood and offers all the things that we utilize that we go, wow, that is glorious. And this is the way the spiritual life works too. Jesus' own death will be like sowing a seed into the ground. That's what he's about to undergo on Friday. That's the price he's about to pay for glory. And through him, we become the same kinds of seeds. He wants us to be planted just like he is. In Romans 6.4, Paul writes something very similar. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus had to undergo crucifixion to die, to have his seed broken apart so that new life would spring out of it. And guess what you get? Baptism. You don't have to undergo the crucifixion. You get to be baptized into his death. So much less painless. Paul's picture here is that we are seeds they get planted when we are baptized into the death of Christ. You might say into Christ's fertile soil. And then a new life, a new plant springs up from within us. And this new plant is one that seeks to serve, to bear fruit like Jesus bore. And Jesus goes on, or John goes on, to give us a wonderful promise in this, of this in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me... The Father will honor him. Honor. Glory. You know the best honor that any seed can receive is to be replanted so that it re can reproduce and live up to its full purpose and potential. There's an illustration of all of this. Um, there's an old folk tale that's been retold over the years. It just really... I think captures what we're talking about today. It's called, It Will Come. And it goes like this. Once upon a mountaintop, three little trees stood and dreamed of what they wanted to become when they grew up. And the first little tree looked up at the stars and said, I want to hold treasure. I want to be covered with gold and filled with precious stones. I'll be the most beautiful treasure chest in the world. 
And the second little tree looked out at the small stream trickling on its way to the ocean and said, I want to be traveling mighty waters and carrying powerful kings. I'll be the strongest ship in the world. And the third little tree looked down into the valley below where busy men and women worked in a busy town. I don't want to leave the mountaintop at all. I want to grow so tall that when people stop to look at me, they'll raise their eyes to heaven and think of God. I will be the tallest tree in the world. Well, years passed, the rain came, the sun shone, and the little trees did grow tall. One day, three woodcutters climbed the mountain, and the first woodcutter looked at the first tree and said, this tree is beautiful, it is perfect for me. And with a swoop of his shining axe, the first tree fell. Now I shall be made into a beautiful chest. I shall hold wonderful treasure, the first tree said. The second woodcutter looked at the second tree and said, This tree is strong, it is perfect for me. And with a swoop of his shining axe, the second tree fell. Now I shall sail mighty waters, thought the second tree. I shall be a strong ship for mighty kings. Well, the third tree felt her heart sink when the last woodcutter looked her way. She stood straight and tall and pointed bravely to heaven. But the woodcutter never even looked up. Any kind of tree will do for me, he muttered. With a swoop of his shining axe, the third tree fell. The first tree rejoiced when the woodcutter brought her to a carpenter shop, but the carpenter fashioned the tree into a feed box for animals. The once beautiful tree was not covered with gold or with treasure. She was coated with sawdust and filled with hay for hungry farm animals. The second tree smiled when the woodcutter took her to a shipyard, but no mighty sailing ship was made that day. Instead, the one strong tree was hammered and sawed into a simple fishing boat, and she was too small and too weak to sail an ocean or even a river. Instead, she was taken to a little lake. The third tree was confused when the woodcutter cut her into strong beams and left her in a lumberyard. What happened, the once tall tree wondered. All I ever wanted was to stay on the mountaintop and point to God. Well, many days and nights passed. The three trees nearly forgot their dreams. But one night, golden starlight poured over the first tree as a young woman placed her newborn baby in the feed box. I wish I could make a cradle for him, her husband whispered. The mother squeezed his hand and smiled as starlight shone on the smooth and the sturdy wood. The manger is beautiful, she said. And suddenly the first tree knew that he was holding the greatest treasure in the world. One evening, a tired traveler and his friends crowded into the old fishing boat. The traveler fell asleep as the second tree quietly sailed out into the lake. Soon a thundering and thrashing storm arose, and the little tree shuddered. She knew she did not have the strength to carry so many passengers safely through the wind and the rain. And the tired man awakened. He stood up, he stretched out his hand, and he said, Peace. And the storm stopped as quickly as it had begun, and suddenly the second tree knew that he was carrying the king of heaven and earth. One Friday morning, the third tree was startled when her beams were yanked from the forgotten woodpile. She flinched as she was carried through an angry and jeering crowd. She shuddered when soldiers nailed a man's hands to her. She felt ugly, harsh, and cruel. But on Sunday morning, when the sun arose and the earth trembled with joy beneath her, the third tree knew that God's love had changed everything. It had made the third tree strong. And every time people thought of the third tree, they would think of God. And that was better than being the tallest tree in the world. Friends, which glory are you seeking? Do you want glory 
that will last for eternity, it starts by exchanging your glory for his. It starts by believing the resurrection, that the, that the final end has already been determined, that it is only the beginning, so that you can be freed up to live your life to the fullest now, to live up to your full human potential by handing over your dreams, your hopes, your ambitions, it will feel like death when you do, but it will lead to greater glory. Once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. Only in Jesus Christ do we find a compelling story of sacrifice. Only in Jesus Christ do we see a compelling vision of glory. Only in Jesus Christ can we find the power to give up our lives. And only in Jesus Christ can we find true glory, glory that lasts beyond this life. Is that what you're seeking? Is that what you're after? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Father, this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that we can give up our lives, that we can lay them down, that we can cling to you and follow you wherever you might lead us, even though it might be hard, even though it might be into death itself, that we can follow you there, that you will be with us because wherever we are is serving you, there you are also. Would you help us to believe this? Would you help us to lay hold of this? Would you help us to, to step out? Holy Spirit, would you make this practical for us in, in a small way this week, of a way that we can step out in faith and lay down our life for someone, ultimately for you? Would you bear fruit, Lord, in the life of this church? Would you continue to grow the table? Lord, we want to honor you. We want to give you all the glory. We thank you for this day. Amen.